excited, guys. We are back into, um, we had such a great time with teen, Adult Teen Challenge here last week. And uh, what a good time that was. But we are now back into Heroes of Faith. We've covered quite a few uh, of the different Heroes of Faith. We cannot cover all of them because this sermon series would go on for a few years. Amen? So um, in this series, we, we're looking at some of the classic Bible stories in the Old Testament. There are those individuals who did extraordinary things for God. I mean, big, large things. Not because they were big people, but because they had extraordinary faith. And that's what we want to have, extraordinary faith, that God can use us in large and small ways. Amen? And in Hebrews 11, there's a list of some of the, the great heroes of faith. We've covered Noah, we've looked at Moses, we looked at Samson last time, and today we're going to look at a guy named David. Now, David's story, he's the second king of Israel. His story literally would, would take a few weeks to be able to unravel because it's very, very long. But I'm going to look at a couple different aspects, the classic giant and shepherd part, and I want to go a little bit before that, chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. And I want to look at this part, the part about David's upbringing. How did he come about? And I really want to look at that part because a lot of us don't know that there is a Jewish traditional thought that David was not a legitimate child of Jesse, his dad. And it's very, very important because when you begin to look at it, you begin to see these incredible parallels between Jesus and a type of Christ called David. Amen? So, I came across this traditional thought um, probably a few years ago. And it's just, it's just been one of those things that just causes me to go back and forth like amazing. There's enough there to make you wonder. And yet, the scriptures are silent enough. To make you go, I'm not sure all the way. Now when that happens, you have to allow the Lord to do what he wants to do. But remember this, the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. Yet we believe that three are yet one. Amen? So let's, uh, let's see what this shows us. We know that David was despised by his family. This is based on Psalm 69. And it appears that Christian commentaries do not mention the traditional Jewish interpretation of Psalm 69. That it's written about either during or when David was in his youth. They say that the Jewish thought says that the psalm is full of pain, rejection, hardship. That David was an outcast by his family. But they do not address the question, why? Why was David's family treating him this way? They say that David grew up in a family which was that despised, rejected, and shunned him. That if there was something that was stolen, they would blame David and he would have to pay, even though he didn't even take anything. And you find that there in Psalm 69. Now, <clears throat> you find that David... Assume that they assume that David was full of sin and guilt. That's in verses 11, 12, and 69. You find that he, that he was accused a lot of times of stealing stuff, uh, verse 4 of 69. You find that he was uh, 
let's say, of jokes and pranks, that they would, they would just treat him harshly, and they would give him literally um, a cup of gall and vinegar, a plate of gall and vinegar. I mean, that's horrible. Uh, verses 20 and 21. But why did, fam- why did David's family treat him this way? Why? So this is where the Jewish tradition comes in. The traditional Jewish thought supposes that David's mother had committed adultery. At least so they thought. As you, you will find out in just a second, she didn't. But everybody in the family and everybody in Bethlehem thought she had. Here's how the story goes. Jesse is David's dad. Jesse is the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, whose mother, who Boaz had married, is Ruth, a Moabite. You can't marry Moabites if you're Hebrew. They treated all the Hebrews bad when they came across the Red Sea, wouldn't let them go through. So God had forbidden that. Moabite blood was not allowed in the Hebrew race. So, because of that, Jesse has a granddad who had been with a Moabite woman. And he didn't like this, and he questioned about his seven sons, if they would ever be treated as Jewish, because him and his dad, they had been so faithful to the word and been faithful to the Jewish faith. But he also knew that he could legally, being a converted into Judaism, he could actually be with a Canaanite woman who had also been converted as a maidservant of his wife, and then they could have children, and that child would be legally recognized as Jewish if that was a son. So he thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to honor my wife, and I'm going to try to do something right for the family name, and I'm going to go with my maidservant, who's a Canaanite, of my wife. Now the Tamal tells us that the wife of David is Nesbeth. And so Nesbeth and this maidservant talk, and, and the maidservant says, I love you, I don't want to do this, I don't want to be a part of this, I've been with you for years, what are we going to do? And she says, I got an idea, Nesbeth says. How about we do the old switcheroo? Remember how Laban did that? Switch the two women, right? So that's, what, that's what's going to happen. So that night, some people figured, right, there had to be some alcohol and it had to be dark. And so that night when Jesse was going to go in with this Canaanite, this maidservant, Nesbeth swaps. And during that time, she conceives. Three to four months later, she has a little bump. The seven sons believe that mama has been unfaithful to daddy, Jesse, and they want to stone her to death according to the law. Jesse says, no, 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 no. She will not tell him the truth because she doesn't want to embarrass her husband. She loves him. So she endures the shame of being called an adulteress when she wasn't, she had just tricked her husband in hopes of being with her husband as well as trying to help the maidservant. The end result is Jesse says no, and we're going to treat this child as illegitimate, the B word, okay? So that child is treated by the family as illegitimate. 
This is why he's the only one always with the sheep, and he's always attacked. Now, when you take this forward and you go when Saul shows up to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be the next king of Israel, who is not invited to the party? Some guy named David. He's out in the field. This is like having the most prestigious individual of all the nation showing up, and he says, I want all the sons there, and you keep one of them out. I mean, we're talking Cinderella at its highest moment here. You got it? He's left out. And then what happens is Saul immediately sees Eliab. He's the oldest son, and Eliab is there, and he goes, guess what? He's tall. He's good-looking. Let me do exactly what I did with Saul and pick this one. And God says, no. It didn't work the first time. It's not going to work now. Eliab's the wrong guy. And the next brother, the wrong guy. All the way down till there were all seven. Well, he says, and it's very interesting in the Hebrew. Uh, Saul's very, very uh, specific in his language. Is, is there not any other children? And they say, Finally, he has to admit, yeah, there's, 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 what's his name? We're not sitting down until David gets here. And he grabs the oil. And he anoints him to be the next king. This is done in secret. I mean, if Saul is to know, he's going to kill He's going to kill Samuel the prophet. He's going to kill Jesse and all of his sons. He's going to kill David. He's going to, this is done in secret. And he anoints him to be the next king. He's a teenage boy. Does he really have a clue what's going on? I question that. And so here we are. We're, we're struggling with seeing his family. They don't like him. They don't like their mother. Here's my point. There are families here. There's individuals here who have family problems. I can take you throughout all scriptures, and you're going to see families with tension and problems. They don't like this son. They don't like this daughter. They don't like this parent. And it's ugly. And it's painful. And if not addressed, it goes from generation to generation to generation. Yet in all of that ugliness and all of that heartache, God says, that one, whoo, he's got a heart after me. That's the that's the one. The one who's been rejected by the builders. I'm going to make that one the cornerstone. That one. He's, he's the one. He wasn't even looking for it. I bet you he didn't even know Samuel was coming. I bet you they kept it a secret to him. So, all of a sudden, can you imagine... What mom's doing as she's watching all of this. 
Can you imagine if the story is true that she's falsely accused of being an adulteress, and all of a sudden this son, God has honored this, all of her suffering, all the suffering of her son, and God is now going to make him the king of Israel? Can you imagine? Here's another thing. His horrible upbringing is really what brings him to the point to face a giant and says, I could take him. Because everybody is screaming at him, you're a kid, you're a punk, you can't do this. He's so used to hearing that kind of language and that kind of conversation from his whole upbringing. Who are you? You're just one of the other ones. I'm telling you, I could take him out. I've taken out a lion, I've taken out a bear. He's, he's a bigger target than all of those guys combined. Let me at him. Amen? And so we have now the story of, of a giant and a shepherd boy. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You know, before I get to that, I'm wondering if anybody caught the similarities between Jesus and David. Because if David truly was thought to be illegitimate, even though he was not, and treated that way, what do you think Jesus was thought of and treated as in Bethlehem? What do you think his mom and his grandparents, the mom and dad of both Mary and Joseph, what do you think of the village? How do you think they would have treated Jesus? I mean, they didn't see the angels, folks. They didn't get it. And then all of a sudden, everywhere they go, they, they, there's Mary. She's cursed as an adulteress because either a Roman soldier or she was messing with somebody around the corner. She, she definitely had to do this. I mean, how will we handle if somebody came in today and there's a woman and she's pregnant and we say, hey, you know what, that only happens one way. You're going to blame God on that one? We all would have raised our eyebrows. So David is cursed by everybody who's supposed to love and, and be dear to him. And Jesus is not well liked and treated the same way. Because David's a type of Christ and all of a sudden we see the same thing in the same city, mind you. Bethlehem. Well, it says in verse 11... And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? He's saying, hey, I, I'm here. I'm ready to anoint the king, but are they all here? Because I just went through Eliab. I went through all the sons. And, and remember, I told you guys to consecrate yourselves. That means we'll get a bath and get clean up and wear your Sunday best to church. And they all came, and they're all, he goes, and, and they walked in front of him. And the Lord says, no, 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 not that one, not seven times nobody. He says, hey, is there anybody else? He said, there remains yet the youngest. Now, why wouldn't the youngest be there? That's usually, you know, the baby of the family, that, the, the spoiled brat. Everybody wants to show him off because he's usually the, the clown and everybody laughs, enjoys the youngest one. And there he is, keeping the sheep. Look, hey, there he is. I think that's him. Is that him? Yeah, that's him. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. 
Now, he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. Theologians believe he had red hair. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Wow. What do you think the brothers thought? He was nowhere to be found. He had absolutely nothing to do with this. He's a nobody. He's a shepherd. And all of a sudden, the greatest religious guy in all the land shows up. And when David is called from the field, he gets anointed in front of all the brothers of Jewish tradition is correct. The ones who have been oppressing and mocking and ridiculing him from the moment he's been born. Wow. Arise, anoint, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. In verse 14, we find out that the Spirit of the Lord leaves King Saul. It's almost like it's leaving Saul and going in to this teenage boy named David. So 3,000 years ago, there those who lived on the coastal plains climbed the hills to threaten and attack those who lived up in the mountains. That would be the Jews. The Philistines are the enemies of the Israelites. While the Philistines came to attack, they occupied the high ground right up here. And then over here, the Israelites took the high ground over there. And down at the bottom is the valley floor. Now, for the war to take place, somebody has to go down the hillside. Now, in ancient battles, there were three type of warriors. There were those who were cavalry. They were on animals. They were on horses or chariots. Then there were the heavy infantry, the ones who carried all the body armor, hand-to-hand combat. Then you had the artillery. These were the ones who had the bows and the arrows as well as the slings. The slingers were known in many different battles throughout ancient times to be the X factor to cause the battle to be won by one side or the other because of the slingers. The slingers were not slingshots like we would do this. They actually were two long pieces of leather with a little bit of a pouch right here. They would put about golf-sized hard rocks inside that pouch they would swing it like a lasso, like a cowboy, let go of one string, and the projectile would go out. Here's a picture of it. Now, many times to get greater velocity, the shorter the length of the string, the shorter the, or the less amount of velocity. The longer, up to six feet, seven feet, now the velocity, because the circular force causes it to go even faster. Well, Obviously, when the Philistines showed up, King Saul became aware, and he obviously he put his guys out there, and it was a standstill. Neither side could advance. Why? Because if the Philistines were to come down, the slingers and the archers would be able to attack them. They have no chance of escaping. And the same would be true on the other side. So the Philistines offer what's called one-on-one duel. Um, A champion from the Philistines would come down, and a champion from the opposing, this time being the Israelites, would come down to the valley floor, 
and they would fight. Whoever wins, would the other side would become their slaves, and all that they have would become theirs. In this case, their champion was over nine feet tall, about 125 pounds worth of armor, and he was really, really ugly. I don't know why I added that. I just felt like it was good. <clears throat> so we find in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4 through 7, it's not in your notes and it's not in the, pro, in the Proclaim uh, software we use, but it says this, And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's over nine feet tall, about nine and about nine nine. He had a bronze helmet on his head and was named with, was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, about 125 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs and bronze javelin between his shoulders, back here. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, 15 pounds. And a shield bearer went before him. Now that part will be important, remember a shield-bearer went in front of him. Now, one Israelite was, not one Israelite was volunteering to go down to fight him for 40 days. The number 40 is a number of judgment, by the way, in the Bible. For 40 days, he would come out and he would scream and yell and curse their God and, and promote his God. And he was just horrible, intimidating and taunting. And all the Israelites were full of fear. Nobody would go down to the valley floor to fight the Philistine giant. So now the only willing one to fight the giant is a teenage boy who came to bring his brother's lunch. And when he came, he asked what's going on. And as he's doing that, his brother goes after him, Eliab. We'll get into that in just a little bit. And finally, the word got that David is wanting to know how much does it take, what do I get if I kill this guy? And they're like, well, this is all we got. So they bring him before the king, King Saul. King Saul's, what are you doing? By the way, David has been in this man's presence playing his harp to calm him down. And so he would be familiar in being in the presence of royalty. I wouldn't say that King Saul knew him because he would have said something here, we would think, but we don't know. So in that, he says, David says, hey, king, it's all good, man. I got this. Seriously, I got this. Are you crazy? You're but a boy. He's been fighting since he was a boy. You, this is ridiculous. You are going to die. Hand-to-hand -hand combat. He says, no, 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 no. I take care of my dad's sheep. You know, when a bear or a lion comes, I handle it. And, and I've protected my dad's sheep. This uncircumcised, meaning he's not covenant, is going to be just like one of those lions or bears. And then he says, okay, fine. But if you're going to do this, then you have to put on some armor. You're going to have to fight infantry to infantry. David's not infantry. David's artillery. Puts on this big old thing of Saul's and goes, man, I, I've not proven these. I've not worn these. I don't know how to move in these. 
this, I, I can't be you, Saul. Takes it off. Says next thing he does, he finds five smooth stones. And as he's going down the hill, you hear this ugly, worse than ugly, he's ugly. Giant yelling out, and he says this. He goes, hey, do you come at, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the scriptures say that he's coming with his sling, his bag of rocks, and his shepherd's staff. Single, one stick. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Why? That's going to be important. We're going to get to that in just a second. So we got important things to remember. We have a shield bearer going out. And now we have him calling sticks. It's going to be important. So all of a sudden, Goliath makes his move towards David. And David runs at him. Just love that part. He sees a giant coming and he doesn't run in fear. He goes, cool. And he runs right at him. Why? Because his background... This horrible thing of being the one who has to take care of the sheep, has to be the one to fight the lions and the bears. That was his training ground. That was boot camp for this moment in time. You may have gone through some horrible things in your background. I want you to know it was boot camp. It was preparatory for what God wants to do in your future. So when the giant comes... You don't have to be fearful. You don't have to avoid. You run at it. You face it. The Bible says as he's going, he literally grabs one of those golf ball-sized rocks, smooth. And he literally swings it so quick. And it hits him between the eyes, and we know that the Bible says he literally falls face forward. He's a shepherd. He doesn't carry a sword. So he needed to borrow one. How about Goliath's? That's big enough. Remember the words that, they, that he was yelling at him? Maybe you remember if you're, if you're a Bible student. I'm going to feed, come to me. That's another important one. We'll get to that in a second. Come to me and I will feed your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David says, you come to me with a sword and a javelin and spear. I come to you in the name of God. The God of Israel's armies. The dead giant is there. He takes his sword and he literally cuts his head off. Can you imagine what it's like now? Because he grabs his head and he holds the head up. I, I, I know a lot of you ladies don't like those gory guy movies, but... Hey, for church today, guys, here it is, huh? And he's just holding this head. Can you imagine how heavy that thing must have been? And he's going like this, and then everybody up here, they get all excited. They run down the hill, and they take off running the other way. The archers don't even do this. They take off and run to the coastal plains to get on the boats and get out of here. And they kill a bunch of the Philistines on the way. And David does not become king. But he becomes a hero. A hero of great faith. 
So when David comes originally to bring the lunch to the brothers and supplies, we pick up on that in verse Samuel chapter 17, 28 and 29. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. It burned against David? Because he's speaking to these other guys? And he said, why have you come down? Um, I brought you something to eat. Dad sent it. And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence, your pride, and the wickedness of your heart. You, you, you know David's heart. For you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? So Eliab shows no gratitude appreciation for the food or that his brother has brought this. And that he's able to see his brother. Eliab is angry at David simply because he's talking to the other soldiers. Eliab accuses David of pride, accuses him of a wicked heart, yet we know that David's heart is considered a heart after God. Now, of course, it's been stressful for everyone, including Eliab, but does Eliab's level of treatment of his brother match what David's done? Why have you come down, Eliab says, meaning our you're just not welcome. And you have no legitimate purpose to be here. And the next phrase. And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Meaning, the only thing you're needed for is to watch the sheep. And you don't even do that right. As there's only a few sheep instead of a lot of sheep. Insult upon injury. I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. For you've come down in order to see the battle. Is Eliab saying... I know the reason you're here is really to see me and the rest of the brothers be killed in battle. Maybe. But David said, what have I done? That leads me to ask, is there not some unspoken history? What have I done now? It sounds like he's used to hearing this kind of verbiage over and over again. David is used to it. He's familiar with it. And he's found a way to just ignore it and move on. Because he does. He leaves. And starts asking more questions. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 40 through 44. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand. And he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. Why is that important? The stick, it says one. We're going to get to that in a second. With the shield bearer in front of him, we'll get to that. When the Philistine... 
looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. Why? Because he was ugly. 43. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, his Philistine gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. So here's some misconceptions about the battle between David and Goliath. Number one, giants always have the advantage. True or false? False. So we know that there's three kind of military. There's the cavalry, there's the artillery, and then there's the infantry. This big giant is infantry. He's over nine feet tall. He's got all this armor and all these weaponries. He's designed to go man to man. David's like going, I am not going to fight you, infantry. I'm going to fight you, artillery. The giant wasn't ready for that. He didn't even have his helmet on, which probably would have protected him. His name is Malcolm uh, Gladwell, and he says that the projectile coming from an ancient sling could have the stopping power of a 45 caliber. Her name is Heather Pringle, the National Geographic, um, and she did a study with Roman soldiers who were slingers, and their study proved that a slinger, a master slinger, could go with such stopping power that it could be equivalent to a 44 Magnum pistol. I'm telling you, somebody had the 50 caliber sniper rifle and the big giant didn't. I mean, if I had a 50 caliber big old sniper rifle and I had a nine foot plus target, who's got the advantage? You see what I'm saying? But we've been told that David and Goliath is all about what? That the small, weak little shepherd compared to this big, dynamic giant, that the odds were astronomical from the weak to the big and to the strong, and yet the truth is God had set it up that it was the other way around. The Israelites couldn't see it, but David could because he's a man of faith. He could see what God was already doing in his past, that he was using it for such a moment as this. He saw it. A sling is a devastating weapon. The accuracy needs to be noted that it's been proven that a master slinger can literally take out a bird in flight. Literally kill one. That's amazing. The accuracy to me uh, is to be noted, but also, so what about Goliath? He's, he's heavy infantry. He's massive. But many scientists believe that he had a disorder called acromalia. What does that mean, this giantism? It means this guy has problems. Some of the symptoms from having this disease is that you have double vision and you're extremely nearsighted. So why do you need a shield bearer to go in front of you down the hill every single day and stand there for you? Because you can't see well and there's no eyeglass doctors to put some specs on this giant. So walking down, he could just fall all the way to the bottom 
of the valley floor. So when he gets there to the bottom, he doesn't see and recognize that it's a small teenage shepherd boy. And what does he say? Come to me. Why? Because i got to have you up close so we can fight. I can't fight you from afar. See how he's taunting him? It's not accidental. That's saying something. Why does he see sticks? Because one of the side effects of this disease is that you have double vision. So he doesn't see one stick. He sees two sticks. This giant has a lot of disadvantages. There's a lot of problems that are going on there. Come, I'll feed your flesh to the birds of the air. Why? Because I can't find you and run to catch you. That's why I have to have somebody like a blind man stick be there to escort me. Number two, other people's opinions always matter. True or false? False. Why are David and Goliath fighting to begin with? Because it's the way that they don't have to have massive bloodshed. And so since they're not going to kill everybody on both sides, they'll send out two champions, and the byproduct will be somebody's going to be slave, and the other guy's going to be master of a nation. And so the toughest warrior in single combat wins. But David, he wasn't worried about it. But did you notice something? He gets there. The first thing, his family attacks him. The next thing, he goes to before the king, and the king says, you're but a boy. This is ridiculous. I got a question. Why is a man who's considered King Saul to be head and shoulders above everyone else, why is he not putting the armor on himself? He's a giant of a specimen himself. He's an infantry guy himself. Why is he not going down to the valley floor to f- confront the giant? He's the king. Instead, he takes off and his armor and says, you wear my armor. Pretend to be me. You're a coward. Isn't that interesting? How is it that leaders... And, and family members can tell you how to do everything, yet they're not doing anything themselves. And they challenge you for chasing a dream. Be careful. He just looks at it in a very practical way. I can't wear this thing. I've never, put it, I've never worn anything like this when I got after that bear or that lion. Can't do this. Sorry, boss. I'm good. Let me just go get some rocks. He did not allow the opinion of the king or the opinion of his brother to stop him. His past, as painful and as much suffering as it was, was preparatory for this moment. And he was ready. Why? He ran down to that giant. Bring it on. This is going to be fun. Number three, a giant problem is to be feared and avoided. True or false? False. 
Note that all of the Israelites were completely terrified of the Philistines. For 40 days, nobody volunteered. They were doing everything to avoid the giant. <laughs> they weren't leaving. How many know if you've got a giant problem in your life, it doesn't just go away because you ignore it? How many have tried the ostrich technique? Please go away. Just don't be there. It doesn't work that way. You've got to confront those giant problems in your life. David's sling is a devastating weapon. And I got news for you. This is a devastating weapon. It will bring down every enemy in your life. Everything that's trying to attack you, lie to you, steal from you, betray you. God will set your heart right that it may not stop them, but it will stop you playing their game to them. And you can move forward. I like this part as, as I close. As you find is Saul says, um, what was that guy's, what was that boy's, he doesn't even know the kid's name. And so when David has to come back to meet Saul, he has the head in his hand. <laughs> and he comes in. How you doing, boss? How you doing? I, I, I'm, I'm not letting it go. I just want you to know, see, this is what God does to giant problems. Not me. What giant problem do you have? Are you willing to face it with the word of the Lord? I come to you, Goliath, in the name of God. He goes, you're an uncircumcised Philistine. I have a covenant with God. How about you? How's your covenant with God? How's your relationship with God? David's out there all alone, day after day, and yet he learns how to play the harp. And can you imagine all the songs he written, all that he had done? And some people struggle with the whole idea of David but I want to read something to you. It says in Psalm 51.5. Do you guys have that or not? Yes. So this is the verse that David, David's been confronted with Bathsheba. And in this situation, um, Nathan the prophet, and he, he writes this whole chapter. And he's repenting. He actually has written a song, a psalm. And in verse 5, this is what he says about his sin with Bathsheba and the murdering of Uriah, one of his commanders, who was the husband of Bathsheba. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. What's he trying to say? I was born out of adultery. Christian commentators don't know what to do with this. So I, I, I'm, I'm really wondering, why wouldn't it be like that? That David was illegitimate, because even though he wasn't, just like our Savior Jesus, 
was considered illegitimate to those around him. But the truth was, it was of a virgin birth of God the Father. You may be considered illegitimate. You may be struggling with all the family because they don't give you full validation. They don't receive you as well. But God sees all. And who knows? There might be a giant God wants you to deal with and bring down for the sake of the kingdom.